Hebrews. And chapter 3 and verse 7. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Our great God, we reverence your word as we reverence you. We ask that you be glorified as we unveil, as you unveil this text to us through the preaching of the Word of God. We pray that you will achieve all your objectives in this. Save the lost, edify your saints, and indeed be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In any Christian gathering... There's a mixed congregation. Not all who are present in church are part of his church, the church. And we should never make the assumption that everyone who comes to church is a true believer. Someone once said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than staying and living in a garage makes you a car. That's a striking analogy, to be sure, but it makes a very real point, a very good point. Not everyone who looks to be the real deal is the real deal. And 1 John chapter 2 is very helpful in that in verse 19 where it unveils what we should think about. Those who go out from the church are no longer part of the church, but in fact no longer proclaim the message of Christ, but are the exact opposite. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 is speaking of those who were once ministering with him, but now no longer do so. So what are we to make of those who once professed faith in Christ who no longer do so? Were they saved and now are no longer saved? Well, if you think through the ramifications of that, that would mean that Christ actually loses true sheep, something clearly Scripture testifies against. He does not let that happen. John chapter 10, verse 26, we read these words, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're one in this. We're one in mission. We will never lose a true sheep. So what are we seeing when apostasy occurs? Those who profess the faith no longer do so. What's taking place? John makes it very clear. First John 2.19, let me quote it. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. Notice that word. They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Rather than saying they were once the real deal, now now no longer is that the case. No, John says they were never true disciples. 
You see, the true saints persevere in faith. It's been well said. The faith that fizzles was flawed from the first. And theologians make a distinction between what we call the visible church and the invisible church. It's tempting to think that the invisible church are those who don't show up on a Sunday, but that's not really what's in view here. The visible church and the invisible church. It's actually a very vital concept to grasp. The visible church, as you might understand, is that which we can see, the church that we see. It refers to the professing church, those who do show up at church, who are there in the Christian services. That's the visible church, the church that we see. The invisible church refers to the church that God sees. It's invisible to us. The elect are not running around the countryside or in church meetings with the letter E stamped on their foreheads so we know exactly who they are. Uh, It would actually be very helpful if uh, in a counseling session you could either see or not see the letter E on the forehead of people in front of you. And if they don't have the letter E for elect on them, we can say, you know, we could talk, but it's not going to help. You might as well just go. Um, So I'm glad we don't do that. But the elect are known to God, and he sees what we call the invisible church very clearly. The invisible church refers to the church that is the true church, and it's named such because the church is, the real church is invisible to us, but it's seen very clearly by God. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Can you say amen? Uh, people might fool you, they might fool me, but they never fool the Lord. The Lord knows those who are his. We often don't know. We can be fooled. But understand this, Hebrews is very much a written sermon. And as you know, when any sermon is presented, there are wheat and there are tares. There are true believers and there are false converts. And they are present to hear the word. And so when this was written, I believe it's written in a sermon format, the writer understood not everybody who heard this were true believers. And he has a pastoral heart. He wants everyone under the sound of his voice and under the scrutiny of his quill to understand the things of God and come into the kingdom of God. And he does not wish for anyone to fail to enter into God's promise of rest in Christ. That's where this passage is taking us. Let's go back and briefly review uh, verse 7, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. We read these words, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice the holy spirit is saying this it's not just something he said long ago he's quoting psalm 95 but the holy spirit is saying and we understand this whenever we hear the word of god god is speaking to us like us if we will to hold our place in hebrews go back to the book of deuteronomy the fifth book of our bibles and in chapter 28 Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, outlines the blessings of God for obedience and the curses that are outlined for disobedience. The first 14 verses outline the blessings. The remaining 54 verses outline the curses. But I want us to focus on verse 1 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 1. And here we read these words. And if you faithfully obey... The voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, and so it goes on. Literally in the Hebrew, the wording is like this. If you listen, listening. It's hard to translate in our English vernacular, but if you listen, listening, it's with an alertness, with a view to obey. If you listen with the idea, whatever he says I will do, that's all the component of that Hebrew phrase, listen, listening. And we can translate it if you diligently listen. Here the ESV reads, faithfully 
Obey, that's a good translation. If you faithfully obey, the New American Standard reads, now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, so these things will take place. Go down to verse 15, and we see the exact opposite. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God to be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, and so it goes on. By the end of uh, the chapter, you and I should know what a blessing is and what a curse is. And uh, we want to, of course, have the blessings. These were God's promises to his people, Israel. So listen, listening, listen with a view to obey. And as we go back to the book of Hebrews, we see the writer outlining the need to obey the voice of God. Where do we find the voice of God? Not between our ears, but in the pages of Holy Scripture. That's where we hear God speak. And we outlined that last time. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. Let me just stop there for a moment. Now, technically speaking, although we talk about the attributes of God and we do studies of the characteristics and attributes of God, wrath is not actually, technically speaking, an attribute of God. What it means to be an attribute of God is what God is and who God is from eternity. And in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not wrathful. There was nothing to be wrathful about. He wasn't just angry with nothing to be angry about. He was not grumpy. He is the blessed God. Wrath is a reaction to something. After sin came into the world, it's right for God to be wrathful, and we can rightfully speak of the wrath of God, but in technical terms, God has not been wrathful for eternity. I hope you understand that. But he is wrathful against sin because it is the righteous response of a holy God against that which is vile in his sight. It is right for God to be angry. But he's not been angry for eternity. Praise the Lord for that. So, God was not angry in eternity past. Wrath is a righteous response of a righteous and holy God to that which defies his holy character. Here's a quote from Dr. J.I. Packer. This is righteous anger, the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator towards moral perversity in the creature. So far from the manifestation of God's wrath in, uh, so so far from the manifestation of God's wrath in punishing sin being morally doubtful, the thing that would be morally doubtful would be for Him not to show His wrath in this way. End of quote. What he's saying is, it would be wrong for God not to be wrathful if indeed he is this holy, righteous God. So, God, we read, swore in his wrath, verse 11, they're not coming into my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Now, the theme of rest is a vital one. It's an important one. And that's going to be emphasized further in chapter 4 of Hebrews. And it refers to God's rest in salvation. And it's always linked with the concept of inheritance. Our rest is found in our inheritance. And the rest of God is the inheritance awaiting all true believers. The best part of that is being with Christ forever. That is where we're headed. But God swore in His wrath, they, that's the generation in the wilderness, will not enter my rest. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, what should not be missed here is that the Holy Spirit is saying this now. Verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says. He's saying it now. And the message is this. Don't be like those of Israel who failed to enter the rest and of whom God said, they shall never enter my rest. 
there were significant stages in Israel's failure. Firstly, number one, they did not hear. They didn't listen, listening. They did not listen. They did not hear God's voice. They heard outward noise, but they never took it to heart. Secondly, they hardened their hearts. Thirdly, they tested God. Fourthly, they went astray in their hearts. And fifthly, they did not know God's ways. They didn't hear his voice. They hardened their hearts. They tested God. They went astray in their hearts, and they did not know God's ways. And so what's the message? The message is clear. Don't make the same mistakes as Israel of old. I'm thinking in my mind of Psalm 103, verse 7, which says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. All Israel had witnessed the acts of God. They knew the acts of God, but only Moses knew the ways of God. And instead, Israel provoked God in what is called the rebellion. We read of that somewhat last time, Exodus chapter 17, Numbers 13 and 14. And the message is repeated here. In fact, uh, verse 7 is repeated in verse five, uh, 15. As is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How did Israel sin? In what way? Well, uh, alone among the nations, God made a covenant with Israel and redeemed them out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt. And in doing so, the people of Israel had witnessed amazing, miraculous demonstrations of power. The plagues were amazing to watch, I'm sure. The Red Sea crossing, absolutely miraculous. And the ongoing supernatural, miraculous provision of God in the wilderness, and yet they'd seen all this and yet turned away. They rebelled. Don't be under the impression if someone sees a genuine miracle, that will cause them to repent. Israel shows us that you can witness on a daily basis God's miraculous supply and turn your back on God. They turned away, they rebelled. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Back to the left, just a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what we have here is a New Testament commentary on that generation in Israel. And I'm simply going to read these words, and though we could spend much time going through it, we would spend little time in Hebrews if we did. So, reading 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that's our fathers in Israel, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as example, examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then... The particular evils are mentioned. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You'll read of that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'll read of it there. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then we read in verse 11, now these things happened to them, not merely for them, but as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, here's the resultant thing we need to apply to our lives. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As I say, we just list those things as we read uh, through that chapter and those verses. And the message is this, the Holy Spirit is saying this to you, to us, don't fall like they did. Don't do what they did. And this is a warning against unbelief. Unbelief is more than doubt. Everybody has doubts. And if you must must doubt, I encourage you to doubt your doubts. Unbelief is more than that. Doubting means, oh, I've got these questions and I've got these concerns, but unbelief is a full-on rejection of revealed truth. It's more than doubt. It's a refusal to believe. I won't believe. That's a choice that's being made. It's not a weakness to be excused, but a sin to be repented of. As we look at those sins in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe the root of all of those sins is the sin of unbelief. Those sins are the fruit of the tree, but the tree system, the root system, is that of unbelief. Here's the warning then as we come to verse 12. Take care, brothers. Watch out. Be on the alert. Be alert to this. Rather than have your ease in Zion, watch out, take care, be alert. Lest there be in any of you, the you here are professing brothers professing sisters. So the message is, watch out, lest there be in any of you professing brothers and sisters under the sound of the sermon, hearing the sermon read, however it is you're hearing it. Watch out, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, look at this, an evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief is not excusable. God has made Very, very clear, the knowledge of himself and his word. And so unbelief is not excusable. It's actually morally evil in God's sight. Here in the United States, thank God for the freedom we still presently enjoy, where you can believe any silly thing and not be prosecuted for it. But God never says it's okay, even if the government does. God never says it's okay that you form your own religion and have some kind of idolatry going on. No, we must worship the true God, for he's the only God who is, and we must do it his way. And God never says it's okay to do something different. Quite far from it. So let's look at these words. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Ask yourself the question, where am I in my walk with the Lord? Do I believe God? And what does that unbelieving heart lead us to? It leads you, leading you to fall away from the living God. So the message is this. Take care, watch out, and don't assume. Don't be complacent. Complacency at any point in our Christian life is disastrous. Perhaps you've been committed to Christ in former years. I remember the testimony of one man and he continually testified to the fact of how committed he was to Christ 30 years ago and 20 years ago, what he did, the trips he made, the missionary journeys, the handing out of tracts, the this and the that. And after a couple of years of this, I said, what have you done for him lately? What have you done? If all your testimony is way back in the past and it's now rare for you to be reading your Bible, rare for you to be in church, where are you? Don't be complacent. The Scripture challenges us to ask ourselves, where is my heart? Hear this, today. Today. Not where was I, but where am I? Some people who've been serving the Lord in pastoring and come to their 80s and whatever, there's still still that need to say, does my heart still want Christ? Will I still read the Bible if it's not just for a sermon. I have to be in the Bible if I'm to bring out a sermon, but if there's no sermon for me, I'm too old to get in the pulpit, do I still want the Word of God? Do I still want to be under it? Do I still want to absorb it? Do I still want to submit to it? 
And if that is not going on in our hearts, it should be an alarm bells. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is true for all of us. It's true for the preacher. It's true for everyone in the congregation. We should examine ourselves to see if there be real true faith on the inside of us. Here's the contrast, verse 13. But, and here's the remedy. We've heard the problem. The problem is unbelief. The problem is an evil, unbelieving heart. Here's the remedy. But exhort one another every day. This is actually the second remedy to unbelief. The first is found in verse 12. Take care. And that's on a personal level. Individually, we ought to apply the Word of God to ourselves. Rather than thinking, I'm so glad Sister Joan is here because she needs to hear this. It's examining ourselves. I need to hear this. In fact, I know this in my own preaching. I'm the first partaker of the ministry. It hits me before it ever hits anyone else. I need this. I preach from my own need. I need to repent. I need God's forgiveness. I need to apply the Word. And James chapter 1, verse 22 says, Be not deceived. Those who think that they are walking with God because they know the Word, are you doing it? Don't be deceived. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So that's the second remedy to unbelief. The first is take care. That's on an individual basis. Now we have the collective. Now we have this exhortation, which is encourage or exhort one another. That word exhort is the Greek word parakaleo, and it means uh, para alongside. We have parables, and parables is the throwing alongside something else. That's what Jesus did as he taught parables. He threw a truth down alongside realities that people understood so that they might understand spiritual realities. And parakaleo means to call out alongside. Kaleo means to call. So it means to call out alongside. So here's the message. Instead of having a heart, an evil heart of unbelief, exhort, come alongside your brothers and sisters, come alongside them and call out to them. Parakaleo. You're not meant to be a Christian by yourself. You're not meant to do the Christian life by yourself. Sanctification, which is our growth in Christ, is a community project. God does not say, for you to be the strong Christian you need to be, be by yourself. People always turn to the example of the Apostle Paul, who by himself studied after he was not really welcome in many places in his early life as a Christian. But that was the exception, not the rule. And it's Paul, in fact who gives us the understanding uh, under God of the body of Christ. We learn more about it through Paul than anyone else. And your and my sanctification is a team effort. Tennis is great, but you can often play tennis by yourself, unless you're playing doubles, but you can't really have more than two. But in the Christian life, we need more than one. We need two, three, four hundred, five thousand. We need however many can be in a local church, and we need the encouragement of our fellow saints. Some people say to me, uh, have you met, uh, in fact, I've met this, this wonderful lady. She's a very strong Christian. They say, uh, uh, so strong in the Lord. And I say, oh, which church do, do they go to? Oh, they don't go to church. Well, how can they be a strong Christian? It defies the word of God to be a Christian by yourself. You can't do it. How about the one another's of the Christian faith? You can't do one another's by yourself. Love one another. Oh, can't do that. Help one another, encourage one another. You actually need another to do the one another's. That's deep. In the last 10 or 15 years, I think the most, uh, uh, con- the most important concept I've learned is the revelation in Scripture of the body of Christ, the local church. Exhort one another. You need one another. I need you. You need me. And no one that has been well said, no one that you speak to today is suffering from a lack of encouragement. And we need encouragement. Can you encourage me by saying amen? Amen. 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 That encourages me. Good. Exhort one another. Look at this. Every day. 
As you read that, you think, well, once a week would be okay, right? No, every day. And I'm saying this, do you realize that can only happen in the body life of a local church? Often I hear things like this. Someone calls me. I called brother so-and-so earlier today. He said after the call he was very, very much encouraged. That's the normal life of the local church where it's not mandated by leaders. Thou shalt call thy brothers. It's just something that happens. Oh, this lady's on my heart. I'm going to call. And it is an encouragement. And therefore, it is something that could and should happen every day in the life of the local church. Look at it as we continue reading. Exhort one another, not Sunday by Sunday, but every day, not merely Sunday by Sunday, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that interesting? If you hear his voice today, obey his voice, don't harden your heart. Now we understand that that today can also refer and does refer to our exhorting one another, encouraging one another. So we need to do two things. Hear God's word today and encourage one another today so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today is a wonderful, wonderful term. Today, you and I have it. We're not sure we have tomorrow, but we do have today. If you're alive, you're alive today. And grace is extended towards you today. How long your today is, is not known. There are no guarantees that it will extend to tomorrow. But today, if you hear his voice and you're hearing his voice through the word of God today, don't harden your heart. That's the message. And because the hardened heart is so offensive to God, the opposite of that would be a tender heart. You see, a hardened heart is willful defiance. Exhibit A in that, I'm sure, in all the scriptures is Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And then we read, and God hardened his heart. He gave him over to the sin that was in his heart. He didn't have to inject fresh evil into him. He was evil, but gave him over to the evil that was in his heart. Exhibit A. Exhibit B were the people of Israel in the wilderness. They hardened their, heart, their hearts towards God. And sin is very deceitful. It entices. Have you noticed this about t- sin? It will tell you of the pleasures, but not the pain. It will tell you of the immediate gratification, the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible refers to sin as a passing pleasure. As Christians, we should be thinking of delayed gratification. I'm saying no to the temporal pleasure, but yes to the pleasures of the age to come. It entices. You see, sin tells us nothing of the gravity of what will happen if we do sin. Satan tempts. And he says, this sin's not that bad, it's a good thing. Go ahead, Eve, partake. Go ahead, Adam, partake. It'll be be good for you. And when we fail, have you noticed, he hounds us with this. How can you have done that as a Christian? You say you're a Christian, you did that, you can't be a Christian. So on the front end, he says, do it, do it, do it. After we've done it, how could you do that? How could you do that? But it's a winning formula. We have to, after we've sinned, come to Christ and confess our sins and realize if we confess our sins, he is faithful, even when we're not. And just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Deception. How does deception come? I noted a few ways through false teaching. Romans 16, 17 says this, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We are to be taught. We are to grow in our knowledge of God. And when we are not taught, we are left in a naive state, vulnerable to deception. Another form of deception comes through human philosophy. Ways of thinking. 
Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Beware of worldly philosophy, the current thing that's out there. Another deception is wicked counsel. Proverbs 12.5, the thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. It's important where we get our counsel. Just because you found three people who agree with you doesn't mean you're right. Check out who they are. Do they love God? Do they know the Word of God? I think the task of elders is to know the Word of God sufficiently that they can help people around them. And hopefully, they know a little bit more than the people they're helping. That's always the goal. I think the greatest deception, though, is the human heart. It's bad news, I know, but Jiminy Cricket was wrong. Always let your conscience be your guide. Someone said it this way, don't believe your heart, lead your heart. The heart, according to Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful above all things. There are some people who do things that are clearly contrary to the word of God, but they have a peace about it. You won't believe it. In counseling, people say, I I just feel that it's okay to leave my husband. He's kind of a deadbeat guy and not doing the leading in the home that he should. And I just feel free. And as I pray about it, I feel peace. My response is, well, stop feeling peace because God tells you that's wrong. Yeah, it usually goes like that. The heart is deceitful above all things. Have a list of deceitful things, and I've listed a few, and above the the top of the list is your heart, my heart. We want what we want. I remember a lady trying to find a reason why she could leave her husband. That's what she wanted. She never found it, but she wanted it. And such is the case. We want our sin, and it is a deceitful thing. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The question is asked. I, the Lord, search the heart. There's the answer. The Lord does. I test the mind. I want to say it this way and apply it to myself. My desires are not trustworthy indicators of the will of God. Now, it could be that God is forming the desires of my heart, that he's giving me a desire to do something. But it could be that I'm just way off and want to do something that God has said don't do. My desires are not trustworthy, and may I say it, your desires are not trustworthy. We should be informed by Scripture, and our conscience should be informed by Scripture. Not our background, not our upbringing, not our culture, but the Bible itself. The devil is obviously the deceiver. And so we're called upon to recognize the deceitfulness of sin. And when you sin, recognize you've fallen prey to deception. I've often thought of the sins in my own life now, and, and I think, how, 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 why, why, why did I do that? And I think it's all temporary insanity. If I thought about it more than five seconds, I wouldn't have done it. And there's often instant regret, but it's an insanity of sort. If you actually know the truth and you buy into the lie, you're saying, though you've not said it publicly or out loud, God, I'm just going to defy you for a moment while I choose my sin. And that's so haunting for the true believer. How could I have done that? And the reason is because I was deceived temporarily. I was insane for a moment and thought that there would be more pleasure in the temporal than the eternal. When you see sin, avoid it. Not just slightly, but run from it. I use this illustration. If you're driving across town and you know there's a temptation on 43rd Avenue, maybe it's a place that has the most amazing chocolate cake. Let's say that's the sin that uh, eating it by yourself without your wife's knowledge would, would, you know. 
So, here's what you do. Knowing the temptations on 43rd, you drive on 51st. You say, Lord, not help me get as close to sin as I can to show how strong I am as I drive past the bakery. But Lord, let me not be led into temptation. Lead me not into temptation. The only person who would pray something different and did something different was the Lord Jesus. After the baptism, the Bible says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We're to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. It's as if God says, this, my son, is devil-proof. He's sin-proof. Have at him, Satan. Doesn't matter what temptation you have, he'll be flawless. He'll come through. God never says that about John Samson. He says it about Jesus. Amen. Stop saying yes. It's true of you as well. <laughs> when you see temptation run, not, well, I'm this strong Christian. No, when you know it's temptation, get out of its way. So here's what we've been told. First, watch out for yourself, and second, exhort one another. Simon Kistemacher writes this, Believers have a corporate and individual responsibility to care for the spiritual well-being of their fellow men. They must consider this responsibility a holy obligation and exhibit utter faithfulness. So here's what we do. We say, come on, brother. Come on, sister. Listen to God's word. Don't harden your heart. Don't be deceived by the law, L-U-R-E, the law of sin. Sin is deceitful. Run from it. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. You can do it. Let me get you into church. Let me get you into the word. Let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. And that's a description of church life as it should be. So we continue reading in chapter 3 of Hebrews. We have something of a theological statement. We're going to end here. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, we've already seen 1 John 2, 19. Those who leave the faith never really had the true faith. They were never really of us. Now we understand this. We are sharers in Christ. And we've come to know Christ. We've come to share in Christ if. Well, how can you say if? Well, I can say if because the Bible says if. Well, how can you say that you're sure that you're in Christ? If. If there's an if, you, leave, you lose all assurance. No, 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 no. He's making a theological point. You are a sharer in Christ if you continue in the faith, if you persevere in the faith, if you continue to love Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's a description of a true believer. A true believer will go on believing. You believe in Christ, go on believing. You've gone through this trial, there's many more that might await you. Continue to believe. Believe on. Believe on. Go on believing. In fact, John 3.16 says this. It says it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that those, literally, who go on believing, those who believe is a good translation, but a very literal translation is this, those who believe and go on believing will not perish, but have everlasting life. The kind of faith God puts on the inside of a believer is a faith that goes on believing. That's the gift of God. It's not up to your will, though you must press for the things of God. It's not on your efforts and your great willpower. It's the fact that the faith that God puts on the inside of you is an enduring look and delight in Christ. That's the gift of God. I didn't have it. I didn't want him. I didn't want this Christ till God says, you know, son, you are my elect, and I'm proving it by taking out your heart of stone. You don't read the Bible and enjoy it. You've got nothing in you that wants it. I'm taking that out of you. I'm putting my heart of faith. In fact, I'm giving you a new heart of faith and repentance. And all of that is my gift so that you now beat to know me. And you think, where did this heart of faith come from? I didn't have it ten minutes ago. No, it's the act of God. Regeneration, being born again, is God's activity, not man's. And unless someone is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. But because they are born again, they say yes. When eight minutes ago, they'd have said no. 
Why do you want Christ? Because God put faith on the inside of you. Listen to this scripture. Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He started the project. He'll finish it. If you're writing a book, do you know the book doesn't get written unless there's an author? And your faith won't be true faith unless Jesus is the author of your faith. If you have it, you now love him when you didn't love him before. And if you love him, guess what? You'll go on loving him. You'll have trials. There may be times when you're away from the Lord. Peter is an example of that. He denied Christ, he but, but was a true disciple, and he came back. That beating heart still said, I want him. I failed him, but I want him. I denied him, but I want him. I want to serve him. And in John chapter 20, 21, all of that, we see Peter restored not only to discipleship, but his role as an apostle, and he preached on the day of Pentecost, not eight years later after he went to prison spiritually for eight years. No, he was restored. If you love me, feed my sheep. This is all slightly exciting, isn't it? Because this comes to the issue of sola gratia, grace alone. Without knowing that it's God who gave you faith, do you realize the opposite of that is you did it? You've got something that you brought to the table. God did everything. Christ did everything on the cross. He died and rose again. What's the gospel? The second person of the Trinity was born into this world through the Virgin Mary, lived an absolutely flawless life pure life before God, fulfilling all the demands of God's perfection in the law. And then on the cross, he bore our sins. Our sins were laid on him and he bore the punishment we deserve and he rose again from the dead and is now seated at the place of all authority in this universe. And anyone who repents and believes this gospel is saved forever. And if you believe it, that faith was God's gift to you. You didn't have it by yourself. And so even in heaven, it's not, well, you did almost everything, but I brought the faith. No, faith is a gift of God. It's not of works. By grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, all of it, the grace, the salvation, the faith, all of that is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So Henry, why are you here? Well, I'm actually a twin, Paul, my brother, he's not here because he's not like me. I humbled myself when I heard the word. And yes, yes, I was more, uh, I guess, uh, transparent with God and uh, did the right thing. I received Christ. That's why I'm here. You know that there's something in you that says, are you in the right place? <laughs> no, worthy is the Lamb. He actually bought me and he gave me faith as a gift. The only reason I am in heaven is the grace of God plus nothing. That's it. All glory to God. All things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be all the glory. If something was of us, that's not the case. Finishing up then. You're a true Christian if you persevere. And here's the other side of that. True Christians persevere. So you must persevere. Hear that? You must persevere. And if you belong to Christ, you will. Verse 15, as it said, today if you hear his voice, today as long as your today lasts, today it's a period of time when God's grace is available to us. None of us know how long it is. We're not to boast of tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So, today, again, if you hear his voice, verse 15, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And now, as we end this, the writer presents a series of questions, and in each case, the answer is obvious. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet, believed, uh, yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Yeah, apart from two. Yes, it was. That's the answer. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Two more questions. The answer again. Yes. Yes, it was. 
You realize this? All that generation over 20 years of age died in the wilderness, well over a million people. Over 600,000 men, we're told, plus women. And only two went into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. All the rest died. Why? Because God swore they're not going in. They're not entering my rest. He swore in his wrath they're not going in. Only two went in. All the rest died. What a warning to us all. To be in and around the church, the people of God, in and around the things of God, but never coming to God. Imagine, on average, you can get your calculator out, and over 40 years it works out at, on average, 90, that's the nine with a zero, 90 funerals every day. That's a full-time job for four decades. 90 sandy graves every day. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? The answer, yes, it was to them, yes. Here's a conclusion. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Don't let this be true of you. Hear the gospel. Believe it. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Watch out! Sorry to wake you up. Watch out! Deception is about. And the deception is so deceptive that we're liable to believe the deception unless we're on the alert. That's the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful provision of Christ in the gospel. May we always live in the light of it and believe you and not succumb to the evil heart of unbelief that so easily could affect us apart from the grace of God. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Let us listen listening and therefore enter into the rest of God, the inheritance of the saints. We ask it in Jesus' name.